You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, my name's Jonathan McEwen and I'm with my co-host Sam Ball. Welcome to The Investor Way this week. We've got Diageo, Fevertree, Rank Group, PZ Cousins, McDonald's as our US company, and a book review of The Great Crash 1929. Sam, what's the first company on the list? So do you want to kick us off with Diageo and Fevertree? Yep, sure. So Diageo, that's the world's biggest spirit maker with brands from Smirnoff to the Stout Guinness, reported interim results to 31st of December 2020 on Thursday, and it was largely positive. So despite the first half sales being hit by lockdowns in many of their major markets, with the closures of bars, pubs and restaurants, many people turned to buying more of their premium spirits to drink at home, such as Don Julio, Casamigos, Tequila, which were up 80%, Bailey's, which was up 18% with the new edition, uh, new special edition flavours, and Scotch Whiskey with brands like Johnny Walker up 6%. And in their biggest market, North America, they performed ahead of expectations in the six months to the end of December, where organic net sales were up 12%. And that was thanks to the growing spirits market ahead of the 7.4% forecasted. It wasn't quite as resilient in Europe and Turkey, with net sales declining by 10%. But that was partially due to the increased reliance on the on-trade sector. Um, So more of the pubs, bars, restaurants, with Guinness being hit particularly badly, down by a third. And especially, as you might expect, in the Irish market. Operating margins, however, improved in the second half with tighter controls on expenditure. And overall, in the six months to the end of December, there was a 4.5% decline in net sales to 6.9 billion, as a 1% increase was offset by unfavorable currency movements. Operating profit fell by 8.3% to 2.2 billion. But the company did, however, lift the interim dividend by 2% to 27.96p a share, remaining cautiously optimistic about the outlook. So Diageo, it's a, it's a company, probably one of the most popular on the FTSE 100. How do you see it after this announcement? I thought the results were really, really good. I think when you think of how badly hit you'd expect it to be by all the bars and restaurants being closed... A 4.5% decline in sales and an 8.3% reduction in operating profit is really not bad at all. Yeah. I think how much worse it could have been. Absolutely. And aside from that, I mean, it's got some really strong brands in there um, that we mentioned. So, and there sort of, there's a premiumization trend, I think, going on with Diageo too. And they're constantly innovating with their brands. They're sort of sometimes acquiring new ones, but otherwise sort of developing existing ones. And I think you saw that with Bailey's, for example. So yeah, it's been incredibly resilient, much more so than you might have expected from something that's sort of, especially their sort of uh, on-trade sector. I was surprised by how much of the profit comes from Africa as well. That's not something I would have expected. No, I mean, they've got, I think, 
the brands are sold in over 180 countries. So it's, it's really diversified. Obviously, the US is the biggest market, mm. but you've also got like Latin America in there. You've got Southeast Asia. So it's not dependent on one single area which or geographical region, which I think mm. is a, a big positive for it. But the net sales in North America, they were 2.7 billion and sales in Africa was 745 million. And I know it's significantly lower, but that's pretty high, especially compared yeah. to the North American sales. That's right. And I suppose you've got, I'm not sure what proportion of that's accounted for by South Africa, but yeah, it, it, it is impressive. It's only half what Europe and Turkey is and half of Asia Pacific as well. I think it's very impressive how, how global the business is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, is it something, is it a company that you would, you own or you would buy? Potentially, I mean, it is just such, I don't own it at the right price I'd buy it because it's just such a quality business. Um, yeah. What did you think of the valuation then? Valuation. So it's currently trading at about £29, nearly £30 a share. Its dividend is about 2.5% and its price to earnings is just under 27 So it's not a cheap business, but I think given the quality and probably the first thing that's going to happen when people come out of lockdown is heading back to pubs, bars, restaurants. I think that on-trade side of the business is going to pick up. I would be very positive, and I think it's probably worth paying 27 times earnings for. If you look at it on a 12-month forward price-to-earnings basis, that, that ratio actually drops to 23 and a half. It's practically a bargain. Practically about, and that, that does compare to a ten-year average though of nineteen point three. But I guess you're paying up for the security and the quality of the business. That's right. I think it's probably one of the most attractive businesses on the FTSE. No, I, I, I think they were excellent results, and I think it is an excellent business. I think the the only issue with it is getting it at a sensible price, but. I think yeah. like I, I can see the argument for buying it at 27. I can see the argument for yeah. buying it at a forward earnings of 23.5. Maybe you'd wait and try and get it a little bit cheaper, but mm. it's it's I, a bit it's I, a business that's on the watch list. Yeah, I think it's probably in my opinion, I think it'd be worth paying up for. And it's a company that you could have in your portfolio for 20 or 30 years. That, I, that well, that's how I like to think of it. I think really like hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it would have definitely been worth paying up for in March. I mean, it's at £29 a share now, but it drops to about £22 a share back in March. And yeah. When looking yeah. back, that, that was a very, very attractive valuation. Yeah. But I suppose you... There's a lot more uncertainty at that point. Yeah. And at that point as well, when bars, pubs, you had no idea when they were going to reopen. And there was no guarantee that people were going to sort of buy these more premium spirits to drink at home. It's easy to say now when we know that that, that is what happened. But, you know, it, was, it certainly wasn't a cert at the time. You own it, don't you? I do. And we'll happy continue owner. to hold it. H happy, exactly. Happy owner. Happy, happy owner and uh, happy with the results. Okay. Um, so we can move on to Fever Tree then, which... Not totally dissimilar, actually. It's an aimlessed company, and it makes premium tonic water. So it's founded in 2004, and they said that their full-year revenues would come in ahead of expectations following a resilient performance in 2020. In their update on trading, the mixer specialist said revenues for the year to 31st of December were likely to be 252.1 million, which is a 3% decline on the previous year, but it's ahead 
of the earlier guidance of between 235 and 243 million. And it's also ahead of consensus too. UK uh, revenues were off 22% to 103.3 million, but ahead of, uh, sorry, ahead 23% in the US at 58.5 million. And in Europe, sales were up 1% to 56.3 million. On trade sales, which were dented by the impact impact of lockdown, just as they were with Diageo, with the restrictions on pubs and restaurants fell around 60% year on year. I suppose that's slightly worse than um, it was with Guinness, but off-trade sales jumped 57%. So again, that sort of same trend that people buying more to drink at home. Rest of the world sales as well. They were very impressive. Uh, Do you want to just quote those? Uh, So the rest of the world sales were up 58% to 25 million, which they said reflected strong growth in key Australian and Canadian markets. So yeah, I think overall with that it's it's a really positive update the reservations i think i'd have with fever tree in comparison with diageo is it's much more limited in in terms of its products it is almost essentially premium tonic water massive margin on it but it is linked with gin and gin has been very popular in the last sort of five years or so but how long will that trend continue and if gin goes out of favor where does it leave this premium tonic water maker they don't have other it's not like a Britvic where you've got lots of brands in the portfolio you do essentially just have fever tree tonic waters got the sodas now but I don't know if they're <laughs> I, contributing significantly I don't think significantly and they tried cola it didn't really work out it's also there's so much more competition in that market with a lot of already very strong brands I think in the tonic market when they entered you basically had sweats, which had been very complacent and the market leader for years, and it was sort of ready for disruption. I don't think the same would be true for other soft drinks. I think the cola market, it's fair to say, is quite a tough nut to crack. That's it, but other soft drinks as well. I I just, it's a very tough nut to crack. I guess upside to the business, if the Americans, if in North America, they became even more sort of besotted with gin, like the UK is, there and fever tree got onto that trend then you could see those revenues from north america you know far exceed what they have in the uk but that's quite a big if and i just don't think it would be as it's the business is as robust or as diversified as a company like diageo and it's certainly got a much more punchy valuation than diageo but when you see the earnings they have been growing them consistently over the last few years and much greater increases than Diageo, but it's, it's, it's a smaller, it's smaller business. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on fever tree, Sam? Just put it into context. So it's, it's full year trading statement. Whereas last time we looked at it on the show, it was the half year results for the first half of 2020 revenue at that point was down 20% year on year. So to pull it back to just a 3% drop for the full year, is extremely impressive given the year that they've had. As well, last time we looked at it, 80% of the revenue was coming from the UK. And the, we, we had a similar issue to the one we've got now, where the biggest issue of the company was the valuation. I think it's trading at about 47 times earnings at the minute. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's 45.8 forward PE ratio compared to an average 12-month forward PE ratio of 47. And really, that I think that valuation can only be justified 
if the international growth is there. And based on these results, it is. And again, given the year that they've had, the 23% growth of US sales is impressive. And the 58% rest of the world sales, albeit off a much smaller base, is again, very impressive. So I think if they can continue to put up those kinds of numbers, I can I can see the justification for the current valuation. Do you think it's a, as robust a business though as Diageo, for example? Oh, definitely not. But you're not you're not paying for the robustness, yeah, are you? You're paying for no, the growth. You pay the growth, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and as well, so they've actually signed a deal with a West Coast bottling partner, which are going to produce and bottle their drinks in America, whereas before they were actually having to. Uh, export them to America and then distribute them. So the costs will be coming down as well. So you'd expect going forward the US sales to contribute significantly more profit as well. Yeah, no, no, that's, that, that is true. That's true. So there are, there's a lot positive going for the business. I guess the valuation can be justified based on the numbers they're putting up. And as a business, it is, it is performing. Out of the two, which do you prefer? I prefer Diageo for sure, but... I appreciate the argument about that you're making about the growth. And I think if you look at Fever Tree, since it went public in 2014, it's been a 13 pagger. So which one would you prefer then? For me, Diageo. What about I'd, you? I'd prefer Diageo as well. Yeah. Right. Uh, on to our next company, Rank Group. Rank Group. So Sam, so- do you want to lead on this one? Are you familiar with Rank Group? Because it's not a business I'd looked at prior to today. Not really. Explain it for us all. So they're basically a gambling company. So they're, they're actually the owner of Mecca Bingo and Grosvenor Casinos. Okay. And they've also got the online gambling platform Rank Interactive. But interestingly, they used to own Odeon, Butlins and Haven. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And, and- it, it, to be honest, I probably would prefer them a lot more if they still own them. I think that'd be quite a nice collection of entertainment businesses there. But it's really just the gambling side of the business that's left now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So and what's the market cap? It's $585 million. Okay, so it's, yeah, FTSE 250. Yes, that's right. So they've come out with their interim results to 31 December 2020. And they were not pretty. Okay. Do you want to elaborate? Yep. So they described it as a challenging first half in which they took decisive action to conserve cash and protect the balance sheet. So revenue was down 55% year over year to 177 million. Operating profits were down 196% year on year which has gone from a £55 million operating profit to a £53 million operating loss. Profits after tax were down 222% year over year. Cash generated from operations was down 116% year over year from a £109 million inflow to a £17.5 million outflow. Net debt actually decreased by 11% year over year. Earnings per share decreased by 217% year over year from earnings of 10.2 pence per share to a loss of 11.9 pence per share. In the financial highlight, the group said the closure of their venues for much of the first half and restrictions on when they could open led to a 58% reduction in revenue. 
However, with closing cash and available facilities of 128.3 million, we are confident we will meet the 50 million pound liquidity test through the going concern period, even under plausible downside scenarios as described in the going concern section below. The fact that they even have to address that is, is very concerning. This, the balance sheet was strengthened through an equity placing of 70 million pounds in November 2020 along lending, alongside lending banks agreeing to a 12 month extension to the existing debt covenant waivers. Revenue from the venues was down 70% due to venues being closed 45% of the available operating days. In the operational highlights section, they mentioned 10% growth in active customers in UK digital brands helped to offset much of the impact of a strict application of affordability restrictions. I'll get to my comments at the end, but I think yeah, a, yeah, 10, yeah, yeah. a 10% growth in UK inactive customers for the digital brand is actually quite poor, mm. given what you'd expect the shift to online gambling to have been from all the casinos being closed. Yeah. They've said they continue to progress the initiatives in the group's transformations, Transformation 2.0 program, focusing on revenue growth and cost efficiencies. And they've agreed to dispose of Blankenberge Casino in Belgium to Kindred Group for £25 million. The disposal subjects regulatory approval, which is expected. A few of the comments from CEO John O'Reilly that I've highlighted are, there is no doubt that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been far beyond anything we or any other leisure operator could have imagined or planned for. The ever-changing restrictions coupled with curfews, which in particular have had a seismic impact on our Grosvenor, on our Grosvenor revenues, have resulted in an exceptionally challenging first half for the group. We have taken a stringent approach in applying affordability restrictions, particularly on higher staking customers, which have impacted revenues in our UK-facing digital business in the half. There continues to be uncertainty looking ahead, particularly as our revenues remain closed and we have no firm guidance as to when we will be able to reopen. We remain focused on managing our liquidity position and following the successful £70 million equity placing in November 2020, combined with the support of our lending banks, I believe we have the balance sheet strength to survive an extended period of closure. We are now focusing on delivering the next stage of our transformation plan and are ready to reopen our venues when the virus is under control and the vaccine rollout has achieved its purpose. Grim reading. Oh, I'm still going. Oh, no. Okay. More. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> So they also had a section on liquidity and they mentioned that as at 31 December 2020, cash and available reserves were 128.3 million, marginally ahead of the projections. And that represented only an 11.7 million pound reduction since the end of June 2020. However, what they've not really highlighted enough is that that 11 million pound reduction includes a 70 million pound equity raise. So really it's at least negative 80 million which when you're left with 128 million isn't very good at all mm. they've also said that they're grateful to hmrc for granting the group a deferral of 37 and a half million of its prior year gaming duty liability they continue to work with their landlords to agree rent reductions and deferrals they entered the half of 13.2 million of deferred rent so again that won't be included in the cash position mm. And they also received a 12-month extension to the existing bank debt covenant waivers. The group is positioned to weather a prolonged period of enforced closure. The average cash outflow in a month of full closure is about £15 million. So based on that, they, they could 
survive for probably another 10 months on the cash they've got, which which is fine, I guess. Yeah, they also mentioned that Grosvenor, Mecca and, and Ratchet account for 78% of the group revenues in the first half of 1920. So they've seen, and they've seen like for like revenue cut of 70% in the first half of the year. So really the, the online part of the business is quite small. Why do you think it, they haven't managed that that's a more successful transition to online. I don't know, to be honest. Maybe it's. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is just speculation. I wondered whether it was to do with the demographic, whether the demographic was, you know, the older gambler, yeah. and they perhaps weren't as tech savvy. There was the sort of social aspect of going to Mecca, for example, but that didn't translate into trying to replicate it at home online. I don't know. Whereas a lot of the other uh, sort of bookmakers seem to be younger and maybe more sports orientated. Maybe yeah, I think, I, think that's I don't it. know much about the industry, but maybe, that, that maybe was... if it's more traditional gambling, part of it is like the thrill of going into the casino and like I don't know, like holding the dice yourself, or, or like you. <laughs> you know, Whereas where it's digital, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I guess it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot harder when it's digital and you know it's rigged against you to just sit there pressing a button that you know over time is going to yeah. be poorer. Well, I mean, that's that, a lot of, you, you say that, but the fixed odds betting machines were, were very popular before they were, were more heavily regulated. Yeah, but it's, no, it's... Yeah, I, I, I take get, your point. I, I agree with their comments that they, they probably aren't going to go bust in the next few months and that the business can survive because I certainly don't envision another 10 months of full lockdown. No, no. But... I mean, what, what state is the business going to be in when it comes out of that? And it's not, if you looked at the financials for previous years, it's not, it wasn't a particularly fantastic yes, business then. Right. Yeah, that's right. So then if it's just, and it's got all these, it's got all these deferred liabilities that they have to pay at some point. And yeah, yeah. It's just, it just looks like a mess. Even if you think, it can, <laughs> even if you think you can get out of it, I don't know how much value is actually there for shareholders. Yeah, um, I suspect not that much. No, but it, it, if they so in terms of the market cap, it's five hundred eighty-five million. Share price is uh, one pounds twenty-three a share, and that compares to a fifty-two week high of three pounds twenty-eight and fifty-two week low of seventy-eight p. Mm. Over the last five years, shares are down fifty-five percent. Over the last three years, forty-four percent. Two years, seventeen percent. One year, fifty-five percent. Financials aren't particularly amazing. I just, I don't know, it just doesn't look like a very good business, really. No, agreed. Um, but if it if it had still had Odium, Butlins and Haven, I probably would be more interested in it. I don't really get why. They, what do you think? Would you do you think it's better without them, or do you think? Um, it's difficult to know, really. I suppose if there's a trend for staycations, you might have seen Butlins do better. Odium. Well, we've seen what's happened to the other cinemas. I think that's that would probably be struggling just as much, if not more, at the moment. And Haven, yeah, same as Buckman's, really. But in um, normal in normal times, I think those businesses would be better together. Be more diversified. It, it'd be a sure. more attractive entertainment portfolio there. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose probably right on that front. It's, it's not like something where you'd look at it and you'd think, "Oh, why the why do they own Butlins and Odeon? You can it's, it's you can see it. Yeah. You can see it. Yeah, it's logical. Anyway, swiftly moving on. 
Yeah, so we've got PZ Cousins. Maybe you haven't heard of it, but it's the maker, so consumer goods, and it's the maker of Imperial Leather and Carex Hand Wash. And they come out and said that their adjusted pre-tax profit this year, for the six, or sorry, for the six months to n- November the 30th, has risen 18.7% to 30, uh, 34.9 while revenues have increased 10.2% to 321.9 million. And that's on the back of unprecedented growth in hand wash and hand sanitizer in Europe and North America, with sales in the region increasing by 32.6%, as Carex maintained its position as Britain's top hygiene brand in a significantly enlarged market. Total revenue generated by the focus brands, such as Carex, Morning Fresh, Cousins Baby and Saint-Tropez, grew 21.9%. So good news. The dividend didn't increase. It was held at 2.67p and the shares were largely flat on the day. So it's sort of got some of the defensive characteristics that we talked about earlier with Diageo. And it's a very similar business to Unilever, although the valuation is not significantly cheaper. It's got a price to earnings of 2144 at the moment and that compares with Unilever with a price to earnings of just under 17 and arguably Unilever does have a a sort of stronger brands and is a bit more diversified than PZ Cousins but I suppose overall and given that we're in lockdown it's I suppose probably one of the businesses that has been a winner for lockdown do you have any thoughts on PZ Cousins as a business I thought the results were good but one of the issues i had was one that you raised i don't think the brands are as good as say a unilever or a racket ben kaiser but it's more expensive than the than unilever which i don't i don't know why you wouldn't want to buy unilever instead so i don't think it's i know it's smaller but i don't look at it and i don't see i wouldn't be buying it expecting that the business is going to grow substantially over time it's, I wouldn't buy it expecting it to be a multi-bagger or anything. So I don't I don't know why you would want to buy it over Unilever. So the business did look good. It just doesn't look as good as the alternatives if you do want exposure to that kind of business. I thought it was maybe worth mentioning that in the results that if you included exceptional items, there were significantly, with the exception of revenue, the profits and the earnings were down significantly. But those exceptional items did relate to the sale of Nutrisema, which I think was like part of the Nigerian business. And there were also land sales. So the exceptional items do appear to be genuine. So I think the adjusted figures are fine to use. And I also thought as well, the net, interestingly, the net debt has come down significantly. So for the half year ended 30 November 2019, it had net debt of 137 million. Half year ended 30 November 2020, that's come all the way down to 18.2 million. So it's in looks like it's in a lot better shape than it was a year ago as well. Yeah, and it's got for reference, it's got a market cap of just over one billion. So yeah, so I, I thought it looked like a good business. I just think Unilever's a better business. Yeah, no right sure. Uh, I tend to agree with you there. And then you've also got Racket to consider. So my pick would probably be Unilever out of the three. And they're all quite similar. So you could buy all three, but if you wanted exposure and you were to pick one, I think Unilever today would probably be the one that I would go for. 
Well, assuming all three are trading at the same PE, which they're all at similar PEs, I'd go for the one with the strongest brands. And I think Unilever yeah. has the highest number of strong brands. Agreed. And then it would probably be followed by Reckitt. So I think Pete said Cousins, not a bad business by any stretch, but the least favoured of those three. Mm. And I think if, if you're paying for the, because it's obviously, it's by far the smaller, but if you're paying for that, you, you, you probably have some kind of expectation for growth, I'd have thought. But I mean, 10% revenue growth is pretty good, but given that this is like the optimal environment for the products they're selling, that just shows there's, there's not going to be loads of growth going forwards, I don't think. No, I agree agree with you there. Okay, and the last company that we have on the list for today is our US company, McDonald's. Yes. So McDonald's have released their Q4 results to 31 December 2020. So uh, fourth quarter, global comparable sales, ignoring exchange rates, fell 1.3%. They pointed out that Comparable sales were around 99% of 2019 Q4 levels following pandemic-related disruption in the year. Total revenue fell 3% to $5.3 billion, and all the figures will be in dollars, by the way. For the year as a whole, comparable sales declined 7.7%. Operating income of $2.1 billion was 9% lower than Q4 2019, and broadly in line with market expectations. And without the gains from the planned sale of Japan stock, operating income would have fallen 15% rather than 9%. The US saw comparable sales rise 5.5% with growth driven by people placing higher value orders whilst the guest count declined. Sales were also helped by the group's marketing decision to discount items. Total revenue was 2.1 billion with franchise restaurants making up 69% of that. U.S. operating income was up 5% to $1.1 billion due to the higher sales, although for the year profit was down 7% due to the higher cost to support franchisees with extra marketing and depreciation charges to do with their experience of the future program. International operating, operating markets was the worst performer, with comparable sales falling 7.4%. The declines were mostly driven by France, Germany, Italy and Spain, but sales were positive in the U.K. and Australia. This division has been impacted by increasing government restrictions with areas with and areas with fewer drive-throughs are continuing to see particularly constrained sales. Revenue reached 2.7 billion with similar levels of declines across across company-owned and franchised units. Operating income dropped 23% to 1 billion, primarily due to the lower sales and higher staff costs due to coronavirus. The international development licensed so part of the business, which is where the McDonald's brand is licensed to third parties, saw comparable sales fall 3.6%, which was driven by Asia and Latin America. This resulted in revenue of $485 million and operating income reached $56.4 million. Overall operating margins were 38.1% compared to 42.5% in 2019. The group spent over $200 million supporting their franchisees in the year which included extra marketing and they've also increased their provision for bad debts relating to money owed by franchisees for 58 million dollars which includes deferrals of rent and royalty payments free cash flow of 4.7 billion for the year as a whole was lower than 2019's 5.7 billion and 
as at the end of December 2020, net debt was 45.1 billion compared to 45.8 billion in 2019. In terms of valuation, the market cap is $154 billion, and that puts it at a PE ratio of 24.6 compared to a 10-year average of 20, and it's got a prospective dividend yield for the next 12 months of 2.6%. So, John, what are your thoughts on McDonald's? They're not the most positive of results, and it's nor is it that cheap as a business. I suppose if you were to look at the, well, not the bull case, but the more positive side, we are going to be coming out of lockdown soon, and that's probably going to be reflected in all of the McDonald's markets. So you would hope that that in itself would return it to greater profitability, but slightly disappointing numbers. What were your thoughts? I thought there were decent results and the, the, the business is holding up okay, but it's McDonald's, so you would expect that. I thought they were all right, but they certainly weren't any better than that. I guess with a business like McDonald's, you know that when things do come back to normal, I wouldn't I wouldn't be concerned about the figures getting back to previous levels. And yeah. I, I don't know, I think with a PE of, what was it? 25. Of, of, yeah, 24.6. That's not too dissimilar to Diageo's PE. And don't, don't you think that you're just paying up for a quality business? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you, I could I could get on board with that argument to some degree. It, it's probably yeah, it's probably like you say, it's the brand, and you come to expect a lot from it. So it's not as that it feels like it's not as though you're just comparing it with any other business. But it's not yeah, it's not unti- you know entirely unfair, I suppose. And especially when things go back to normal, I think yeah, you'd expect it to get back to at least what it was doing before. So I genuinely, I thought you'd be possibly more keen on McDonald's. It's a, I, I viewed it as the type of business that you quite liked. Right? It's, it's quite like very high quality. <laughs> it's the sort of business that you're typically attracted to. It's t- t- typically attracted to. I suppose that's true. I think maybe in the last five years, it's seen more competition and it's not as resilient as I probably would have you know, originally thought. And you've had, I suppose, five guys coming into the market and a few more sort of disruptors. But yeah, it's, it's, it's something I would probably look again at, maybe see how it performs in the next year. And if we do see trends going back to normal, take another look. I think probably one for the watch list. Okay. All right, so of the five businesses that we've talked about today, so Diageo, Fever Tree. Rank Group, PZ Cousins, and McDonald's. If you had to buy one, which one would it be? Probably, probably an obvious one for me, it would be Diageo this week. I'd go with Diageo as well, actually. Yep. What would be your second? Ooh, second. That's, a, that's probably a bit more difficult. I mean, ha- having not been that impressed by the McDonald's results... I'd probably still be looking at PZ Cousins or McDonald's as sort of companies that I'd be interested in, maybe more watch list than sort of buying, but uh, I realise it's a hypothetical. Yeah. I mean, the last one by far would be Rank Group. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, that, that, that's, that's sort of, yeah. Speculative, speculative one might be Fever Tree, or probably would be Fever Tree, I think. McDonald's would be my second choice. Okay. I mean, I, I, think, I, did, yeah. I did quite like it. It's just, I did, I did agree really that twenty four point six for a company where 
like you say, there's a, there's a lot more competition now. And I think as a best case scenario, you'd hope it could hold its own. So yeah, it doesn't that have that case, note that I think uh, I've watched the film, the founder. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's good. Yeah, it is good. It's yeah. It's a, yeah. About the founding of McDonald's and how it sort of, well, would you describe it as a, um, a real estate business? I think it's certainly a significant proportion of it. It's just, it's just rent, yeah. isn't it, that they collect? Yeah, that's right, that's right. But it's an interesting film if, if anyone's bored during lockdown. Yeah, but I guess with, if you compare it to Diageo, I guess with Diageo, it's not unreasonable to think that maybe they could increase sales or earnings by 5% a year. So let's say indefinitely. McDonald's, you'd, you'd pro- I'd be more hoping that they stay where they are and don't decline. Yeah, I yeah think that's that, the difference. I, I'd agree with you, yeah. Right, so shall we move on to our book review? Yeah, so what have you been reading this week, Sam? The, cra- so, the Great Crash 1929. Yes, by John Kenneth Galbraith. So it was first published in 1954, and it was it basically just looks back at the events of 1929 and the stock market crash. It doesn't really talk about the depression that follows. It is just focused on 1929, although it does talk about it a bit at the end. 1929 is the main focus. So it was. It just read like a bit of a, a history sort of storybook. It was well written. It was easy to read. It's only a couple of hundred pages. There were a few points that I wanted to talk about. Though. So one of them that was quite interesting, which we don't really have anymore, is that one of the reasons that the crash was so bad in 1929 was because of the trusts. So what would happen is you'd maybe have a, you'd have a, you'd have stocks that were issued, and then you'd have a trust set up that would just buy shares let's say shares of one company but it would issue let's say a third of the capital so let's say it had a hundred million dollars in it a third of that would be debt a third of it would be preferred stock which you can think of as debt really and the other third would be through issuing shares it would then take all those funds and go out and buy the stock of one company so it was effectively leveraged because say that company doubles the trust that's bought it, all the that doubling in value would go to the equity holders rather than the debt holders. So the, sh- the share price of the trust would more than double. So that worked really well when things were going well in 1928. And then what happened was when, when you had the crash in 1929, that process reversed because then when, when these things get cut by 50, 60, 70%, the trusts were falling even more. Um, so it was, we don't really have that now, but it was quite an interesting concept. Mm, and, mm. and then one point that was made in the book that was quite interesting was with a bubble, it's easy to look back at in hindsight and say what popped it. But the reality is with a speculative bubble, anything can pop it. Because once mm. once confidence has gone, the whole thing starts to unravel. And then there were a couple of pages that I thought were particularly interesting. So I'm just going to read those out. So it is a couple of pages, so this might be a couple of minutes. Yeah, no, go for it, go for it. As already so often emphasised, the collapse in the stock market in the autumn of 1929 was implicit in the speculation that went before. The only question concerning that speculation was how long it would last. Sometime, sooner or later, confidence in the short-run reality of increasing common stock values would weaken. When this happened, some people would sell, and this would destroy the reality of increasing values. Holding for an increase would now become meaningless. The new reality would be falling prices. There would be a rush, pell-mell to unload. This was the way past speculative orgies had ended. 
It was the way the end came in 1929. It is the way speculation will end in the future. We do not know why a great speculative orgy occurred in 1928 and 1929. The long accepted explanation that credit was easy and so people were impelled to borrow money to buy common stock on margin is obviously nonsense. On numerous occasions before and since, credit has been easy and there has been no speculation whatsoever. Furthermore, much of the 1928 and 1929 speculation occurred on money borrowed at interest rates, which for years before and in any period since would have been considered exceptionally astringent. Money by the ordinary tests was tight in the late 1920s. Far more important than the rate of interest and the supply of credit is the mood. Speculation on a large sale requires a pervasive sense of confidence and optimism and conviction that ordinary people were meant to be rich. People must also have faith in the good intentions and even in the benevolence of others, for it is by the agency of others that they will get rich. In 1929, Professor Dice observed, the common folks believe in their leaders. We no longer look upon the captains of industry as magnified crooks. Have we not heard their voices over the radio? Are we not familiar with their thoughts, ambitions and ideals as they have expressed them to us almost as a man talks to his friend? Such a feeling of trust is essential for a boom. When people are cautious, questioning, misanthropic, suspicious or mean, they are immune to speculative enthusiasms. Savings must also be plentiful. Speculation, however it may rely on borrowed funds, must be nourished in part by those who participate. If savings are growing rapidly, people will place a lower marginal value on their accumulation. They will be willing to risk some of it against the prospect of a greatly enhanced return. Speculation, accordingly, is most likely to break out after a substantial period of prosperity rather than in the early phases of a recovery from a depression. Macaulay noted that between the Restoration and the Glorious Revolution, Englishmen were at a loss to know what to do with their savings and that the natural effect of this state of things was that a crowd of projectors, ingenious and absurd, honest and navish, employed themselves in devising new schemes for employment of redundant capital. Baghot and others have attributed the South Sea bubble to roughly the same causes. In 1720, England had enjoyed a long period of prosperity, enhanced in part by war expenditures. And during this time, private savings are believed to have grown at an unprecedented rate. Investment outlets were also few and returns low. Accordingly, Englishmen were anxious to place their savings at the disposal of new enterprises and were quick to believe that the prospects were not fantastic. So it was in 1928 and 1929. Finally, a speculative outbreak has a greater or less immunizing effect. The ensuing collapse automatically destroys the very mood speculation requires. It follows that an outbreak of speculation provides a reasonable assurance that another outbreak will not immediately occur. Within time and the dimming of memory, this immunity wears off. A recurrence becomes possible. Nothing would have induced Americans to launch a speculative adventure in the stock market in 1935. By 1955, the chances are very much better. Any thoughts on that, John? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there are probably some just simple lessons, um, quite apart from going into the sort of historical reasons behind 1929, but like borrow, or buying shares on the margin probably not doing things like we discussed with CMC markets the other week, investing what you can afford. But ultimately, I suppose I would say optimism wins out. So time spent in the market and maybe taking a 
cautious or a more cautious approach with dollar cost indexing. I think all of those things could help you be a sensible investor uh, that benefits from the market rather than losing from it. But um, yeah, what, what, do you have anything from the rest of the book um, that you took from it? I think the increase in the savings rate being a prerequisite was quite interesting. Mm. So I, I saw the, the other day, actually, a statistic where compared to a year ago, Americans have one trillion more saved than they did. Okay, as a result of lockdowns, presumably. Lockdowns and also the helicopter money. So Okay, yeah, sure. So I, it, it's interesting because there's, there's a lot of talk about valuations in the US now. It's something we've commented on fairly frequently, yeah. how expensive they seem to be. Yeah. But if you look at like $1 trillion, even for the US, that is a significant amount of money. Hmm. And if that were to go into the stock market, valuations could become a lot more absurd than people think mm. than they currently are. It's interesting. One thing that's also interesting is that initially when a bubble pops, people don't realize it's popped until well after the event because they think they're buying the dip. And it's it's only afterwards it becomes apparent that the dip's just continuing and continuing and continuing. Yeah, um, you're not going to be calling the bottom. No, so I guess I guess it's like you said. I think the only real way to do fine is it is to make sure you're holding stuff where if the market places it at a much lower valuation than it currently is, would you be happy to hold it? So, for example, let's say you buy McDonald's now at a PE of twenty five. If we were to go into some kind of big recession or depression, that PE ratio might come all the way down to 10 or even 5. I know that's yeah. a very extreme scenario, but if you're not happy holding it at that level and you wouldn't be comfortable with that drop, then you you probably shouldn't own it. Yeah, or not check it anyway. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's another thing. Yeah, um, no, that's true. And I think that's something that's difficult to recreate until you've actually experienced the loss or the paper loss. It is very, it's very difficult to know how you react in that situation. But I think probably holding indexes is less psychologically difficult than holding yeah. individual stocks. And it depends what your philosophy, well, political philosophy and sort of philosophy for life is more generally as to whether you believe in the system. I think if you believe in the system and have an optimistic outlook, it's easier to hold in those situations. Whereas if you're pessimistic, goodness, you'll have a difficult, you'd have a depressing and difficult time uh, and probably lose a lot of sleep. But it's, I think it's having that belief in it too, in the fundamentals of the system that we have. I think it's quite good as well to read books like that when you are in an environment where prices are quite high. So it does, yeah. it does help. It's easy. To, I'm not suggesting that what is going on right now in the US is anything comparable to what was going on in 1929, because I do, I do think the current valuations are a lot more grounded in reality and probably have mm. more to do with all the cheap money that's floating around and the, and the zero interest rates. Yes, yeah, yeah. But that's it, true. Is, it is important to remember that if those interest rates were to start going up for whatever reason, or if prices were to start coming down, it's just interesting to have studied previous crashes, really. I suppose it can only, only be helpful. True. But what do you think the alternatives, you know, we've, we've talked what you mentioned, that a lot of Americans and British people for that, um, for that matter have more in savings on deposit than perhaps at previous levels, you know, a year ago or in the last 10 years, where else can they put their money? Well, I think, I think like the main takeaway for me, it's more about not getting caught up in the speculative mania. 
So an example would be like the investment trusts, where if you're holding those, the values basically went to zero. Whereas if you were holding the underlying securities of quality companies, the values contracted significantly, mm. but you, you could have ridden it out if you had a long enough time horizon. And I suppose it, it goes it goes with some of the stuff that's going on now, or I think particularly with like some US stocks, because the valuations are a lot higher on some of the quality stocks. So for example, two or three years ago, you could have bought really, really quality growth stocks like, let's say, Etsy, Mercado Libre, maybe even something like Amazon and Microsoft. But what now looking back were very reasonable valuations. And if you look at some of the stocks that people are buying now to try and chase those same returns, it feels to me like they're lower quality companies. And that doesn't mean people won't do well in it, but I think it's just part of that. They get people just get caught up in things and they start lowering their standards as to what they'll invest in because they're chasing returns rather than remembering how they should be investing if they want to do well in the long term. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a, a very valid point to make. Okay, well, that certainly left us with a few, yeah. Ended uh, on a high. And yeah, ended on a high. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening this week, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets.